I see we're missing a few people. I hope they weren't out binge drinking last night with a message like this coming. Um, today we're going to talk about the folly of uh, drunkenness and how the wise know how to celebrate. And I'm just going to start us off with some startling and alarming statistics. I knew that alcohol was a problem in our uh, culture, and I but I didn't realize how severe it really was. Alcohol is the number one drug problem in America, if you really want to categorize it like that. There are more than 12 million alcoholics in the U.S. That's only the ones who admit it. There's many, many more closet alcoholics and people who have trouble and problems with addictions. This one really took me back. Americans spend 197 million dollars each day on alcohol. Wow. A 2000 study found that nearly 7 million persons ages 12 to 20 were binge drinkers. So we see that the problem's not only with us as adults, but it's with our children. Three-fourths of all high school seniors report being drunk at least once. And this is so dangerous because these are years where our teenagers are so prone to make stupid decisions anyways. And when they're under the influence, they can make decisions that could cost them their life, that could affect them for the rest of their life. And it's just a dangerous time to be getting drunk, as it every time is, but even more with our teenagers. And, of course, the one that took me back the, the most and breaks my heart. In the United States, a person is killed in an alcohol-related car accident every 30 minutes. I would say that alcohol, the excessive use of alcohol, is a problem in our culture. On top of that, alcohol is a factor in 73% of all felonies, 73% of all child beating cases, 41% of all rape cases, 81% of all wife battering cases, 72% of all stabbings, and 83% of all homicides. <coughs> you can't cough on this, Mike. This thing catches everything. <laughs> On top of these startling statistics, many of us have had horrible personal experiences with whether we've been abused by an alcoholic physically, emotionally, verbally, or sexually, or just the pure neglect of being in a relationship with an alcoholic. So many of us, it's hit home. So how do we respond as Christians? statistics and to these horrible experiences we have have had well we respond really in three, three major stands people totally prohibit any first of all before i say where i stand and where i believe the biblical stance is i want to say that i'm very sensitive to people who take this stance because many of them have by alcohol. Many of them have lost loved ones or seen families broken up from alcohol. So I don't want to belittle any of that. But I do want to say that I don't think that we should totally be in a legalistic way prohibiting, prohibiting people from drinking alcohol. Some people believe that alcohol as a drop of alcohol is in sin. Do I need to adjust something, Brent? 
Oh, yeah, sure. Whatever works. I haven't used a handheld since the late 80s. So some people totally prohibit the use of alcohol. <laughs> I'm going to have to hold this mic. Man. I was going to be like, all right. I don't think this is a biblical stance. Here we go, old school. Like my old Pentecostal days walking around here. <laughs> they prohibit the use of alcohol. They believe it's Satan's beverage. And so they think that any Christian that has one drop of alcohol is in sin. Like I said, I'm sensitive to that, but I can't stand with you on that. I do believe there's some people who should be prohibited from drinking alcohol. The second one is some people abstain from drinking any alcohol. And I commend the attitude of their heart because the attitude is they don't want to cause their weaker brother to stumble. And I do think... There's instances and circumstances where that's the approach we need to be t- taken. We need to be sensitive to the leading of the Holy Spirit. And if we see that a weaker brother is around who has problems with alcohol, let's not be shooting shots in front of them. Let's be sensitive to them. Let's not cause them to stumble. But if we take that approach in abstaining, then we're going to have to abstain from many other things. 67% of husbands cheat on their wife. Guess what? I'm not getting rid of my wife because you have a problem with women. All right? Many people have problems with excessive eating in this culture. I can't watch who I eat a Whopper in front of. You know, we have to be sensitive, but on top of that, we can't go to the extreme where we just get crazy with it, but we're sensitive to the Holy Spirit. That which brings us to our third stance, which I believe we hold with an open-handed, with an open hand here, is that moderation. With sensitivity to people who stand with those other positions, and you can go to this church and be someone who prohibits or someone who believes in abstaining, but we really stand on moderation. And let me explain why. We like to turn to the Bible as being our highest source of authority. And so we want to see what the inspired Word of God teaches us on alcohol. And you start in Genesis 14, and you see that when Melchizedek meets with Abraham and his companions, they, he provides wine and food, and they feast. They have a good time together. Now, the Hebrew word for wine there, and believe me, I'm no Hebrew scholar, so I'm probably even going to pronounce this wrong, is yayin. Yayin is used 130 times in the Bible. It means fermented grape juice. It's an alcoholic beverage. They were drinking alcohol. They were enjoying it, and they were having fun. In Deuteronomy, you see that God commands his people, not commands them, but he allows them, to drink alcohol during their feast. He says, have wine and have strong drink and enjoy yourself. We see in Psalm 104, 15, David thanks for the Lord, thanks the, thanks the Lord for the wine that makes him happy. Okay, I don't think that he had so much grape juice that he was feeling healthy, man. Lord, thank you for that healthy drink. He was thanking the Lord for the wine, and I'll just let you finish the rest. But this was Solomon's father, the one who were really reading from today. We're reading from his words of wisdom. He's the one who wrote this text. And in this text we're going to read, it's it's Proverbs 23, 29 through 35. It's really talking about the folly of drunkenness. (coughs) 
Now, if you do some background on this text, you'll see that this text has many similarities to ancient Egyptian texts that are found in 1250. Now, should that alarm us as Christians? Not at all, especially when it comes to wisdom literature, and especially when it's in the context of the Old Testament. Because if we turn to 1 Kings, if you turn real quick, I'm sorry I'm putting you in Proverbs. We're going to have to go 1 Kings first. Okay, in 1 Kings 4, 29 through 31, it places the wisdom literature of the Old Testament squarely in the context of the Near Eastern wisdom literature. And let's read that. It said, And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure, and breath of mind like the sand on the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all people of the East and all wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all other men, wiser than Ethan, the Ezraite, and even He-Man, Calcol and Dada, and the sons of Mahal, and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. So notice here, he's not knocking the wisdom of these other cultures. He's just saying that Solomon's wisdom surpassed their wisdom. This doesn't mean that we can't get wisdom from other cultures. One of the ancient Egyptian proverbs was, Do not commit theft because you will be found out. If you live by that, you'll do good. You shouldn't be stealing something. But it lacks the revelation of God. It lacks, they're similar, but they have crucial differences. Like it's not the writer, especially Solomon, when we're reading in the context of inspired scripture, he was carried along by the Holy Spirit. He was prepared by the Holy Spirit. It speaks of devotion of God. It has the fear of God. It has the knowledge that was brought to the covenant people of Israel. They know the law. They know God's word. He has made covenant with them. So this wisdom is different than that wisdom. Even though you can get, you know, when you read a fortune cookie once in a while, you get some good wisdom. Don't lie. You guys know you read them. But that's not revelation. That's not the inspired word of God. Right now, we get to sit under the words of the wisest man who ever lived besides Jesus. And this is how the original audience would have heard this. They would have been like the people who came far and wide and wanted to hear the 3, 000, one of the 3,000 Proverbs of Solomon. They would have come to sit under his wisdom that was God-given. It was a gift given to him from God. It was inspired. It would change your life. It would give you direction, instruction, and teach you how to live wisely. So what are we looking for direction in today? We're looking to be instructed of how to deal with alcohol, and it's really talking about the folly of drunkenness. And it starts us off, if we could turn to Proverbs 23, 29 through 35. It starts off, it, us off with an emotional question and answer session. It says, who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without a cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who tarry long over wine. Those who go to try mixed wine. So let's just break this down right here because this really brings us to the condition of a drunkard. I like to call them drunkards. I think sometimes when we use the language alcoholic, it makes someone a victim. And I think a lot of people that have addiction problems are among the most selfish people in the world, if I could be honest with you. I realize a lot of people go through pain. Don't get me wrong, and I'll speak of that as we go on. But many of them play the victim 
and they're selfish, and they look inward so much that they can't get away from the bottle. So the Bible calls them a fool and a drunkard, so I'm going to try to use that language with we understand in our culture the meaning of what an alcoholic is. So, who has a woe? A woe is misery that's brought on by an affliction. Those who are drunkards, those who are fools, those who are alcoholics have some of the deepest inward turmoil in their hearts, in their being. They suffer from so much shame, so much guilt. And some of them might have been victims themselves. Some of them might have been abused and feel shame and guilt because of that. They have many woes. And then it goes on to who has sorrow. If you ever sit with someone who is a raging alcoholic, you will hear some of the saddest stories that you've ever heard. You hear about men and women who have left their families, who have lost their homes, who once had promising futures, who had many talents and gifts, or maybe who've been through wars and came out of the wars and couldn't deal with it. So I want to sympathize with people who've gone through that and suffer from these addictions because there are some sad, sad stories that come out of that. Who has strife? Those who are drunk always have a beef. I was driving to a job in High Park, and I was preparing for this sermon. I ran into about 30 drunks. Now, I never run into people who are drunk. I don't know if God was just putting drunks in my path, but I ran into so many drunk people in prepping for this sermon. I'm driving to a job in High Park, and I just had seen on the news a story about a Good Samaritan story where no one, it wasn't a Good Samaritan story, when people had just left someone lying dead in the street in New York. And it blew me away. I said, how could people just leave someone like that? He was there for three hours, and no one even stopped, stopped to help him. So I look on the side, and I see a man laying on the road. It's freezing out. I see a man laying. You walked into this little park, and he was laying there. So, of course, I had to reverse because I was too convicted because I just read the story the night before. You guys know how it goes. So I'm trying to wake the guy up. He's got, he's geared up in trash bags. He's got a hat on. He's all geared up for the winter, just laying there. Like, it wasn't like he, he laid down to get comfortable. It was like it just mid-walk just went boom. And I can't wake him up for like five minutes. I'm going, this dude's dead. So I'm ready to call an ambulance. He wakes up and he wants to fight me. Who are you? And he was using words we can't use in church, no matter how missional we are. (laughs) He wanted to fight me on the spot. And I said, dude, I'm just trying to help you. Drunkards always have a beef. They always want to fight. And when you add alcohol to the equation of the inner turmoil, they want to fight verbally and they want to fight physically. If anyone's been to a Yankee Sox game, oh, my goodness. I had to go with the pastor's son who's a Yankees fan. And, of course, we're sitting in all these Red Sox fans with all these Red Sox fans, and he sits right in the middle, and they're fighting the whole time. I look on the balcony, and it's bad enough with just the Yankees and Sox fans without the liquor added to it. There's these two big burly dudes throwing bows on each other. The Yankee fan is up against the balcony. The Red Sox fan's lighting them up. And I'm thinking these dudes are going to fall off the balcony, but they don't care because they're drunk, and they're fighting over foolishness. And anyone who's been around scenes and club scenes and parties in high school realize that fights, a lot of the time, will break out. Who has complaining? Now, today is going to be filled with a lot of stories because I believe this proverb was written from observation, and so I'm going to give a lot of um, stories that I've observed on the, the folly of drunkenness. I had this guy who used to work with, his name was Bobby. And I was his apprentice. And Bobby was a raging alcoholic. 
Every day at 4 o'clock when work got out, he'd have to stop before we went back to the shop and get a drink just to make it back to the shop. And he had a saying. He said, the sun never shines on Bobby. That was all he ever said all day. Everything we did, the plug wasn't lined up right. The sun never shines on Bobby. We're digging a trench. The sun never shines on Bobby. I said, it can't be that bad, bro. It can't be that bad. You live in America. You're independent. Celebrate. It was so messed up because many people in the condition of someone who is a drunkard, they're complainers. They have crooked speech. They always play the victim. And if I didn't have a mic, this would be a lot smoother transition, a handheld. They complain over and over again. And we know as Christians, we're not called to be complainers, but we're called to have a thankful heart and to speak in an edifying way and not to complain and thank God for his goodness and thank him for our provisions. Who has wounds without a cause? Now, there are wounds. People receive wounds that are honorable. When our soldiers, they go fight for our freedom, they fight to defend our country, and they are wounded, those are honorable wounds that have a cause. When a policeman is shot in the line of duty protecting his town, his people, his city, that's an honorable wound. When an alcoholic falls off the curb and bangs his head, that's not an honorable wound. That's a wound with no cause. Another story, I'm sorry. Driving down Wakefield the other day, I see these two drunk guys, they're walking, and one guy's, I'm like, he's going down. That's it. The guy that's holding them is barely less drunk than the guy he's trying to hold up. We've all seen this. And he went down on his back. So I did, shot, stopped the car, did that reform pastor rescue run over to him, picked him up. This guy was all banged up. He had so many wounds that had no cause. He was bleeding in his arms. His head was banged up. It's foolish, foolishness. The folly of drunkenness. Is this a grown man in his 40s drinking so much that it's 2 o'clock in the afternoon and he's falling off the curb and his grown friend is trying to get him back into his apartment? And that's one of the things we're trying to... The foolishness of it all. And finally, who has redness of eyes? If you ever met someone that's drank for stri- 50 straight years, these brothers don't look healthy. They got skin that it looks like you shoot a bullet off and it just falls. You know what I mean? They look so unhealthy. Alcohol can lead to so, I mean, excessive drinking can lead to so many health problems. I was drinking a Bud Light on vacation, part of my preaching prep. So I drank a Bud Light and I looked at the warning and it had all these warnings for my health. It said, don't drink while you're pregnant. I said, okay, I'm clear. It said, don't operate machinery. I said, all right, I'm on a lounge chair. And it said, you know, all these things. It said it could affect your health. And I'm thinking, man, should I really? I can only really drink. I'm the definition of a lightweight. I drink one beer, it's over. I don't, you know, that's it for me. But it can lead to so many health problems. How many people waste their time, precious time, being hungover in our culture? All our young people. Going out Friday and Saturday night. Should be in church on Sunday, but they're getting so banged up on Saturday night that they can't come to church. They're drunk. They're throwing up. They're acting like fools, and they're cheering about it. That should not be named among us. And it finally gives us the answer in verse 30. Those who tarry long over wine will have all those problems. They'll be complainers. They'll have strife. They'll be miserable. 
They'll have health problems. And then in verse 31, 32, it says, Do not look at wine when it's red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and it stings like an adder. Now, when I'm looking at a glass of wine, I'm not someone who's ever had a problem with alcoholism. So it's no big deal to me. I thought, man, that wine looks good. But someone who has struggled with addictions, when they see that glass of wine, when they see that beer, when they see that bottle of vodka, they see something different. They see relief from their burdens. They see relief from the pain. They see relief from the struggles of life and living in a fallen world. They see relief from the guilt and shame. And they think, just for this moment, just for this night, just for this day, I can drink my pain away. Everything's going to be all right. And they don't realize that the end in the end, it bites like a serpent. You look back on your life and you say, I lost my wife. I lost my husband. I lost my children. I lost my job. I lost my purpose. I missed my calling because I have drunken my life away. And this can apply to other addictions. Heroin is a serious problem in Malden. Some people here might be hooked on prescription drugs and no one even knows it. This applies to all addiction and problems like that. It bites like a serpent, and it takes away your life. Then verse 33 goes on to talk about the two sins that drunkenness leads to. So I'm playing cards last night. I got home before the fight. I wanted to see that Brock Lesnar fight so bad, and I grew and I matured, and I went home and went to bed because I knew I had to preach. But we're playing cards, and one of the guys is tanked at the table. He's a guy we love. Um, he's one of the fathers of my friend. And he's always getting tanked. And he looks at me and says, Joey, they asked me what I was preaching. I said, the folly of drunkenness. He's saying, getting drunk's not a sin. I said, with all due respect, because you're older than me, getting drunk is a sin. It's a sin. And I don't think some people realize it's a sin. We as Christians, as temples of the Holy Spirit, should never be drunk or have the appearance of being drunk. Not only is drunkenness a sin, it leads to other sins. And it talks about this. Many translations say your eyes will see strange things. But it says, your eyes will see strange women. How many men I've sat with and I've seen (coughs) who have committed sexual immorality when they were tanked? All of a sudden, those walls they had up in the marriage, they come flying down. Because they're they're in a scene of revelry and they start drinking too much. Matthew Henry calls wine the oil that lights the fire of lust. When you get tanked, You forget the fear of the Lord, you forget you're a child of God, and you forget all the things that you shouldn't be doing. How many men and how many women have fallen and committed sexual immorality because they were drunk? And you look at the scene today. I had to watch a piece of the hills yesterday, part of my preaching prep. Got to be, you know, culturally relevant. And I'm watching all these men in... They're men and women, and they act like girls and boys. I swear, people are like, they want to be 16 to about 35 nowadays. It doesn't even make sense. I'm, I'm like, dude, you're, they're acting like I acted in high school, and they're 35. You know, it, it's ridiculous. So they're drinking and getting tanked, and all the sexual immorality was going on, they didn't show it. But everyone's hooking up with everyone, and there's no barriers and no fear of the Lord. It's not meant to be like that, and we should not be like that as children of God. We should not get so drunk that we start inappropriately dancing with women and men. Even if they're your husbands, that's not an excuse. We shouldn't be doing that. We should not be doing that. 
in our heart starts to utter perverse things. We speak of things that we wouldn't normally speak about. You get drunk, you say things to someone that you shouldn't say. You mock people. And forget about crude jesting. Guys are bad enough as it is. You add alcohol to the equation, everything goes out the window, and they speak God-dishonoring speech. And we're called, we're accountable for every word we speak. Every word we speak. And when we get drunk, we do not um, really think about what we're saying. And we should think about everything that we are saying. And it says, you'll be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea. And different commentators said different things. You either get so nauseous, like you're in the middle of the sea. And some others said, your life will be so unsteady and inconsistent. If you ever looked at an alcoholic's life, it's so inconsistent. They can't keep a job. They can't keep a relationship. They can't do this. This is what happens when you get drunk. It also goes on, you'll be like one who is at the top of a mast. Some say the same thing. It's because you'll be going back and forth. But others say you'll be open to destruction. You are so open to destruction when you excessively drink. You are so open to destruction when you use any substance to alter your sober mind. Do not forget that the devil roams around like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. That he loves to see men and women drunk who are children of God so he can cause them to fall and so he can tempt them and so he can alter their life through bad choices. And finally it says, they struck me, you will say, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake? I must have another drink. I was driving to the hardware store at 10 of 9 the other day. Actually, it was roughly around quarter of 9. The hardware store is right next to the liquor store. There was about 9 or 10 dudes pacing in front of waiting for that liquor store to open. Just looking at the vodka like. They just wanted to get in there. You knew they were tanked the night before. They were all beat up. You could tell they were drunks. They drank. They were miserable, probably sick. They had no homes. But they were waiting so they could do it again. Just like a dog returns to a vomit, a drunkard returns to the liquor store. That's a current proverb for you. But I remember saying, how foolish it is that you're a drunk and you're waking it up to do it again. How many times we run back to the same sin that God is trying to bring us out of? Let's get away from that sin. Let's repent. Let's turn to Jesus. Run into his arms. And so really with that said, they beat me and I was not hurt. really brings us to one of two of the reasons that I think people really drink in this culture. And I talked a little about it earlier. One is because of the inner turmoil and the pain and just living in a fallen world. World. I think many people turn to alcohol because of that. And I'm going to share just a little from personal experience. My grandfather was a raging alcoholic. My great-grandfather was a raging, vicious alcoholic. My father was, had addiction problems, and he was an alcoholic. One of my most vivid memories of my grandfather is... He was homeless for about 20 years. He, um, my great-grandfather had beat him so bad when he was younger that he lost hearing, part of his hearing. So he left his house at 15 years old, and he enlisted in the army. He lied about his age just to get away from his house. He fought in two wars. 
he came home, he fathered seven children and was in charge of 11. And he turned to the bottle. He had a lot of pain in his life. He ended up abandoning his family. And he was homeless for 20 to 30 years. I don't know exactly. And one of my most vivid memories of him is he lived with us for a time because he was homeless. We were trying to get him in the house. And the bathroom door was open. And uh, he was drinking the cologne. Just because he hoped there was some alcohol in there. How bad? How much turmoil? How much pain? How many wounds? How much sin do you have to have to be drinking cologne just to ease the pain? And I don't want to belittle the pain of living in a fallen world. Many of us have seen death. We've lost. We've been in wars. We've seen things we shouldn't have seen from the consequences of sin. But we should never have to turn to the bottle to heal our pain. We should be turning to Jesus. And if I could talk to my grandfather today, and I don't know the condition of his soul in eternity. I don't know if his heart was regenerated. I don't know if God saved him. And he put his faith in Christ. But I would tell him that the gospel is true. That the Father loved this world so much that he sent his only son to take on human flesh to battle temptation, to battle attacks, to live the perfect and sinless life that we couldn't live. To die a brutal death, to take our afflictions upon himself, to bear our sin, to die and to rise again so that we will be justified by grace through faith, sanctified by the Holy Spirit, and one day glorified by the Father. I would tell him that no more does he have to feel that guilt and that shame Because Jesus bore it, and he expiated his guilt, and he cast it as far as the east is from the west, and erased it from eternal memory. So he didn't have to wake up that pain of thinking, I'm a failure. My identity is lost. I've let down my family. I have fallen. I am nothing. He could have said, I am in Christ. It has been forgotten. I am love. I am a child of God. He loves me. The Holy Spirit will bring me through this. I am liberated. I would have told them, told him that he could forgive his father because Christ had forgiven him. That with every blow that my great-grandfather beat him with, that he could forgive him because we had been forgiven of so much. That the gospel is true. And I would say, don't be filled with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Wine will leave you empty. Getting drunk will leave you empty. But the Holy Spirit causes you to drink from the fountain of life. The Holy Spirit causes you to endure. He really comforts. Wine promises the comfort. Alcohol promises the comfort. But it leaves you empty, just like sin always does. But the gospel always leaves you refreshed. The Holy Spirit is always there. The Father never lets you out of his arms. And he watches over you. And he sees your pain. I would have told him that his afflictions didn't have to be for nothing. And didn't have to not have a cause. But they could be used to bring glory to Christ. They could be wounds with a cause. Because if you promise someone they won't suffer, you're lying to them. But they can suffer and bring glory to God. And anyone in here who's battling an addiction that some people might not even know about, I would say first, repent of your sin. Don't act like a victim. Second, I would say tell somebody. Get into community. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Talk to people who can pray for you and help you. You're not going to be judged here. You'll be more hurt if you try to act like something you're not. Second, I would say, the second reason people drink 
in this culture is to have fun. And who doesn't want to have fun? Someone preached the gospel like we have to put on a lifelong poker face. You can only dance country western because the Southern Baptist said so. That's the only holy dance. You should do the electric side. Enjoy yourself. You know, Macarena. Enjoy yourself. Have fun. Our forefathers enjoyed themselves. Abraham threw a few back and partied and enjoyed his loved ones. And enjoyed being a child of God. Enjoyed being chosen. Enjoyed being part in the fu- part of the chosen nation. Jesus, and I don't want to get too much into this because this is so played out. He turned 180 gallons of water into wine. It wasn't grape juice. Come on. You know? They already drank 180 gallons. And our Savior God and King comes by and says, all right, let's get 180 more on tap. And he wasn't promoting drunkenness. He was promoting fun and celebration of life and celebration of being the children of God and celebration of marriage. We should enjoy life. We should have fun. People should be drawn to Christ because we celebrate so well. Man, those Christians know how to feast. And they know how to feast right. So I want to talk about some ways we shouldn't party and some ways we should. Okay, I went to a party I got invited to by one of my wife's friends over Christmas. And so I was thinking there'd be some nice fellowship there. We're walking. Everyone was the pastor's son there. Everyone went to church. I walked in. They were like drinking gasoline, dude. Just pounding it back. Just getting wasted. They're sneaking out into the garage to smoke jibbers. Christians, children of God smoking jimmers. Let's get this out of the way. Christians should not be smoking weed. I can't talk to another pothead Christian that tries to tell me herb was made by Jesus, so he's drinking it. I mean, smoking it. (laughs) If he's drinking it, there's really a problem. We shouldn't be smoking weed as Christians. It's illegal. Stop rolling joints if you're a Christian, please. We should never be inappropriate. And the only reason I'm addressing this, because it's a problem in our culture inappropriately dancing. This high school, oh my goodness, when I see the way that some of these kids dance, I want to find each one of their fathers and punch them square in the face. Like, have you been drinking for the last 20 years? We shouldn't be dancing inappropriately. Remember that you are a temple of the Holy Spirit. Remember the fear of the Lord. We shouldn't be dressing inappropriately. Wear something. Please, this should not be part of the partying scene. We should not be crude jesting. We should not be talking like the world talks. We should not be making light of things that are shameful to God and God dishonoring. Let's talk about ways we should party. Number one, one of the distinctives of a Christian party is there should be great unity. 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 You go to that place, you know you're accepted. You know that the Presbyterians won't be sitting over here, the Catholics over here, you know, the Calvinists are over here, the Gordon guys are over here. There should be unity. There should be acceptance for who you are. You shouldn't have to act like someone you're not. You should come to have funny. fun. We'll be one in the bond of the Spirit and just enjoy being the covenant people of God. Our attitude should be thankfulness that God is watching over us another day. That his blood still stands and still makes us clean. That we're still redeemed. That we will always be redeemed. We should party right. Should be love. We should be affectionate. We should look at each other like we're brothers and sisters, like our families here. 
It's time to enjoy life. Have a nice BBQ. Have a nice, and I'm talking about function right now. When you go to that wedding, please enjoy yourself. Don't be that guy on the side and say, what's wrong with him? He's Christian. Don't be that guy. Does nothing for the gospel. We should have good grub. The old Italian women used to do it right. They'd make that soup with the little meatballs and then make that angel hair pasta, the real skinny pasta. And the artichokes, you've got to stuff them. And the artichoke stuff. You should have good grub. Christians should be making good grub for feast, BBQing it. And I'm saying this because many of us are BBQing today, and I hope no one gets drunk after this message. But that's some of the things that should mark. And when we drink, we should drink in moderation. We should drink to be glad, drink to enjoy ourselves, but always staying way far away from being drunk or even the appearance of being drunk. Drink, but never drink to be drunk. And of course, please dance. I already said this, but this is one of the things that should mark a Christian party. Don't do the dancing like I used to go to these Pentecostal gatherings. And they'd literally sing worship music with a dance floor. So they'll be doing like the happy song, and people were dancing like they're in a club. It was ridiculous. We can dance to good music that's not inappropriate and enjoy ourselves. You don't have to dance to Hillsong every time. Please dance to Hillsong. But you can hear a good country western beat and enjoy yourself. But the one thing that we should celebrate beyond any other thing is the person and work of Jesus Christ. That's what we're gathered here today to do. And as we come to the common meal, the greatest feast there is, to drink of the wine that satisfies the soul and the bread of the body that was broken for us and remember what Jesus has done for us and memorialize the work of Jesus to the Father and renew the covenant every week. We should be shouting. We should be crying. We should be hugging. We should be rejoicing. We should be laughing because this is a real celebration. I'm watching the World Cup, and I, I love sports. Don't get me wrong. But it bothers me every day in my life that people celebrate sports more than they celebrate Jesus. Blowing those vulvazalas, what are they called? They're blowing the trumpet for soccer. We should be blowing the trumpet for the Lord. They used to do that back in the day. They blow the trumpet for Yahweh. They were excited. They put their passion into God. They put the passion that he loved them, the passion that he washed over them, the passion that he created them. How much more us, post-Christ, should we be rejoicing in the sacrifice and the resurrection of Christ? How much more, knowing that God is love and that he sent his son and that he died for us and that he was risen and that he's coming back one day. We can rejoice because Jesus is coming back one day. We can rejoice because God cares, because he's living inside of us, because he's powerful, because he loves you, because it is true. So I would close with saying this. Do not be filled with wine, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Don't be a fool that gets drunk. Be a wise man or a wise woman who celebrates the gospel and celebrates Christ. Amen? Let's just close in a prayer. Father, we just thank you that you're a good God. And we know our failures, Lord. And we know many of us at times have drank too much. And many of us have battled addictions. And many of us might even be battling them now. I pray by the power of your Holy Spirit that you would break those chains in our hearts. We are your children, and we need your strength because we cannot do it on our own.
I pray that you would keep us far away from drunkenness and far away from revelry. That we would act like children of God and bring glory to your name and that our works would glorify you, Lord. I also pray that you teach us how to have fun. Teach us how to feast right and teach, you, teach us how to celebrate right, Lord, and righteously. And if we come to the table today, Lord, that we just rejoice in your goodness, rejoice in your blood, rejoice in the trueness of the gospel, rejoice in the, you, the triune God who loves us and who cared enough to save us. We just thank you for all your goodness. Amen.